share about a couple of months after. But um, oh, emotions are terrible. <laughs> oh, they're awful. And people have been praying for me to get more soft and oh, bring on Spock. Um, this time was slightly um, not expected. Um, the verse along the top is the verse that I've been holding tight that to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. No, it's not our time. It's his time. Um, and I have learned that um, through the past couple of years that I could write my own way of that verse. A time for the expected a time for the unexpected, a time to be Mary and a time to be Martha, a time for the known and a time for the unknown, a time for what you need over what you want, a time for your army that is around you to stand up and hold you, and a time for your army that you cannot see that they'll go to war for you, a time to lose yourself in order to completely find yourself. And that's what I've found over the last number of years, that um, God and I have got very real. And I remember last summer, whenever I was talking to a friend and we were talking about the year on the ship and everything that happened, which I will talk about. And she asked me, has it made you and God weaker, your faith weaker, your faith less? And I paused and I was like, no, it's made it more real. And I think whenever hard times hit and they hit, they hit everybody because it's life. Life isn't perfect, and we're not perfect, I'm not perfect, and, but God is. And I thank God that God holds on, and we try and cling on, and at times it's so hard, and at times we don't have the energy. And I found that, and I'm thankful for the body here. I'm thankful for my dad, for my sister, that... Trust me, it's good to pray for us, but it's good to pray for people that live with us. Because trust me, they see the good, the bad, and the ugly. They see the times where nobody else would even imagine. And if I share it with anybody, they're like, okay, you wouldn't do that, would it not? Would it not stomp up and down, screaming, I feel so stuck. I feel frustrated. I like, God, where are you? I feel like everything is blank. I don't know what, what is happening. But they see it, and, there, and at times there's nothing to say. Sometimes it's just having the person there to say, I don't know why this is happening, but I'm here. Or as my dad just kept on saying, it will come. <laughs> and you know what i done, 33 years old? I don't want it to come! I want it now! <laughs> Trust me, I did. Tears streaming down my face. I did. So my season on the ship, this was the third year. Oh, praise the Lord for technology. <laughs> praise the Lord for weird buttons. Right, I'm going to try and hopefully that this will work. So this was my final year starting 
Cameroon was a year that Mercy Ship had never went to. It was new ground. I was excited for that. Um, expectations of what God could do, expectations of what could happen, but expectations that were realistic, knowing that it was going to be hard, knowing that the country didn't know us, we didn't know them, the government didn't know us, um, that people didn't know us. Now, can you imagine a ship pulling in to uh, the docks offering free operations? You don't have to pay for anything from the moment we meet you. Hello, Laura, everything's free. Everything from arriving there, to staying there, to feeding, to everything. Operations, lab work, scans, post-op care, rehab, everything's free. Sounds really strange, doesn't it? And especially if you haven't met these people. And um, from the word go, it was trying to build the rapport up. Trying to build a place where, this is my prayer, that whenever they entered the tent that I was in, that, um, that they felt loved. These people that we were trying to help were not accepted. They were exiled. They had tumours. They had legs that were misshapen completely. They couldn't go to school. Children taunted them. Adults taunted them. They couldn't lift their heads because of the shame. They felt not loved and my prayer was to change that around, for them to feel how everybody should feel, that healthcare should be a right, not just because of where you are born. I don't accept that. So in order for this to happen, it takes an army of people. This is just the medical crew, so from nurses, to the doctors, to the anaesthetists, to the surgeons, to the rehab team, to the physio. It takes an army, but it's not just the hospital. The ship has to keep on going. So I lived with 400 people, and I lived in a cabin with four people. <laughs> and my third year on the ship, I basically knew everybody, so I picked who I lived with. But there was one girl from... Mexico, and she was determined she was moving into my cabin before I said yes. She had put her name down and it was not to be moved. I thought, oh, who is this girl? I don't even know this person. But that person became a person that encouraged me, that was there for me, that told me to keep on, keeping on, lapping, lapping, come on, you can do it. I knew whenever I was off and you know God knows ahead of time God knows what we need over what we have in our head and I thank God for that so there wasn't an awful lot of space on the ship for me time and I'm quite an like an outgoing person right people have asked me how long are you going to speak for and my timer hasn't even started so I've only spoke for a second <laughs> so and I would say I don't really need an awful lot of me time. But see, whenever you can't have it, oh my goodness, you realise how much you need it. And as we go on, we're going to find out. So this is where I spent a lot of the time. So the ship was my home. The ship is where I lived. The ship is where I ate. Um, and the tent is where I worked. Um, I started work around 8am on Monday morning. 
and Cameroon, the screening process, which is the team that I was in, we are responsible for picking the patients, knowing the scope that the surgeons can work in and that we can help. And we are the ones that say yes, we are the ones that say no, I'm sorry. And we're the ones that guide them through the process until they enter the hospital. But by that stage, you have attached in some way. You have become that person that you're the go-to. And I love that, but we have seen so many patients that you feel like each time a part of your hearts. And some people ask me, do you miss it? And Spock, Spock. I miss it every second. Whenever you find glory, Whenever you find that one thing that you believe that you were born to do, you feel so alive. And even though you're so exhausted and you mightn't be eating properly, you mightn't be able at night to turn off because stories are going through your head, the patients are begging you, please help me. You love it still. It's the hardest job you'll ever do but it's the job that you love. And the team around you start to be some of the closest people to you. You might know them very well at the start, but by the end of a week, it feels like you've known them for a month. And ship time, which we often refer to it as, is this weird paradigm where a day is like a week, a week is like a month, a month is like a year. Three years I spent on the ship. So I felt like I spent a long time and I've met some of the most incredible people, crewmates, but the patients especially. They have a part of my heart that just beats for Africa. And as much as I, because I don't want everybody thinking, oh my goodness, she's so miserable to be home. I'm not. I love home for the people. And for the friends that I have and for the family that I have and for the love that I have and for the, and for the acceptance. There is something so special about, about people who know you. People who know you that you don't even have to explain. People who know you that know that you're off. That, mm, Rachel's a bit quiet. Mm, is she okay? Or she's not smiling as much? Or, you know, they just know you. And this team became a lifeline. And you become so attached. I got to know them so well. I got to know their families. And they're still contacting me. And that's an amazing thing. Because it's not just us here in Northern Ireland. We're part of the body. And the body is international. And I love that aspect of it. So patience are what have kept me going on days where I didn't know from the minute I walked out, I was praying, God, you're going to have to help me through this day because right now I feel like my heart's about to burst. Days that I felt like I was so exhausted, I didn't know how I would see the end of it. Days that didn't finish at five, eight, five because 
We had so many patients still waiting for scans, waiting for the results, waiting to be told, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Patients that whenever I had the scans back, I just started crying because I knew they weren't, they wouldn't have the help. Glory, this is terrible. The help that they needed. Kids that needed help, kids that I thought the future ahead of them could be amazing, but they need help and we can't do that. And that's what I mean by a time to be Mary and a time to be Martha. And sometimes whenever I've been thinking about this, there's things that I'd done wrong, that I got so overwhelmed with the work, so overwhelmed with the need that, and it's not that my heart wasn't in the right place because my, my heart was to help them and I believe that God had called me there. But sometimes we get so distracted by everything around us. And they are real things, they are. But God calls us to look to him. And sometimes whenever the need is so much and you just think, if I don't do this, it's not gonna happen. And that's the way our team kind of felt, that if we didn't do it, it didn't happen. And that caused long working hours, which, which led to not really eating properly. Sleep didn't really happen either for a while. And before we knew it, we become very tired. And whenever we become tired, we don't become very nice people, do we? And let's just be honest, before 10 a.m. and I don't have a coffee, don't talk to me. <laughs> I am not a talkative person. But I want to share a couple of the patient stories with you that um, touched my heart. Um, some of them you're going to be shocked at, um, but the outcome's good. So Ulridge is our first patient. He's 12 years old, and I first um, encountered him um, before the summer that I joined the ship to go to Cameroon. Cameroon screening was performed in the April of um, that year, and we joined Cameroon in August. And we had trained local people to go out into the country because the government said, because of ISIS and stuff like that, we were not allowed to go into the country. And so we had to train them up into what they would be able to do and what we were able to, um, can somebody else do this for me every time this comes up? It's like a fiddly button here. So um, we had to screen them and the people went out, took a picture of them, took down their information on the phone and then sent it through and we had to scan through all of these. And Ulridge was one of the people that I first saw back in May, April, May, and my heart just sunk. And yes, his legs are out of shape and stuff, but more what made me sad was his eyes. His eyes had no hope. And um, whenever I met him, um, he wouldn't look up. And he wouldn't look at anybody. And he had went to school for years. Kids um, teased him, taunted him, poked him, hit him. And he walked with the sticks. And his family member, I want to say his granddad came with him. And he just cried and told us the story 
but his legs just started misshaping and this was how it was and he could barely walk. It, it, it caused him such pain. And um, we screened him and the surgeon that we've been working alongside is amazing and God has enabled him with such amazing skills and talents and he believed that he could help him. But because of the extent of the injuries and stuff, we decided to do a leg at a time because the pain would be so much post-op. And um, we explained rehab would be extensive, would be intensive, and he did not care. And the smile here is whenever we said, we're going to try and help you. And that was the first time that he smiled. And that ignited something within my heart for all the long days, for all the no's, getting the yes is the most amazing thing. And um, this is him, post-op, one leg, awaiting a further one. And we left a gap of four weeks to five weeks until we'd done the second leg. And this was the first time that he stood. And he learned how to walk and he was just crying with joy. And everybody was crying with joy. His granddaughter was overwhelmed. And imagine the hope renewed. Imagine the life Elridge now has. God is amazing. God is amazing because there's nothing of us. And I thank God that I had the privilege to be part of it. But it had nothing to do with me. And it had nothing to do with any of the surgeons. And every time before any of the operations, we always pray, God, guide our hands. God, lead us. And sometimes the best thing is knowing when not to operate. And that is a hard thing, but that's a good thing too. And I can always remember the first time hearing that, thinking, what do you mean not to operate? But sure, if we don't operate, these people won't have the operations. But you have to think of it. These people live in a country that don't have access to any healthcare, or if they do have access to healthcare, they, they are charged such an extortionate price that they cannot afford it. Or some people try to afford it, so they sell all of their land, they sell everything, and they're left with nothing because they're so desperate for help. Can you imagine that? Because I can't imagine that. Because I come from a country where if I have an accident, I know that I'll be taken care of. That, like, I don't have to worry about not having any of the papers right. Americans can, kind of. And that kind of started to grate me because they could understand to a certain extent. Because all of my Americanos, as I call them, would often talk to me how they wouldn't step foot out of a house without having the proper papers, without having the insurance, because it would, like, just wipe them out. And I just couldn't fathom that. I couldn't fathom the time that mum was so ill that the worry on top of the natural worry was how are we going to afford this care? I just cannot fathom that. And sometimes, sometimes it causes me to say, God, why? And I thank God that there are people that are willing to send people and that there's people that are willing to go. And my prayer from I was young, you know, parents, whatever you allow some of your younger kids to hear, be careful because my dad's now starting to eat his words. Oh, what do you mean? What do you mean? 
he dedicated me onto the Lord, Daddy. So, you know, it's what the Lord wills. Don't be pulling the Christian card with me, Rachel. Or, you know, but there's a song that always stuck in my head and it was, Make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. I'm a drummer, not a singer. And may the prayer of my heart always be. If you know it, sing it. Make me a servant. Make me a servant. Make me a servant today. And that has been the prayer of my heart from I was young, but I didn't understand that. I didn't understand what that meant. And sometimes the seasons that God calls us into reveal stuff to us that was planted long, long ago, planted by other people. And, but God knows it's there. And God knows the time that it's meant to come up. And I know for as hard as the year was, I was meant to be there. And so the second patient, baby Paul. So Isaac knows baby Paul so well. Baby Paul arrived on a day that I was running a MaxFax screening. So MaxFax patients have tumours on their, on their face, on their neck, on their head, um, cleft lip, cleft palate, stuff like that. I had 50 patients that day. No idea how we were going to get through them all. We had to do labs on everybody. We had to HIV test everybody. We had to counsel everybody. And next thing I heard, one of my managers saying, Rachel, you've got another patient. And I didn't even look up her. I was like, Rhea, are you kidding me? Look at the amount of purple sheets I have. And she just looked at me and said, you're going to understand. And Paul and Mama Paul, as I called her, walked in and... This is the only picture that I want you to see because there's other pictures, but it's too much. And baby Paul weighed two, two kilograms, three months old, a third of the weight that a normal child of that age should weigh. This is one kilogram. So imagine two of these and a baby who should be quite chubby and we rolls legs. I love all that. Baby Paul didn't have any of that. Baby Paul had arms that were so weak he couldn't even hold them. His veins in his head were popping through and his breathing was so laboured. Nutritionally, he, his mother struggled because the cleft palate was so large and his cleft lip was a bilateral one. So Mama Paul tried so hard and she heard about us coming and she walked for days non-stop and she just knew my child needs help and she found somebody that knew about the ship and normally we had to go through this list of people so we had thousands and thousands and as soon as we saw Paul we knew we had to help him and as soon as everybody in the team saw him they fell in love instantly and we saw something in his eyes that it was this fight and he was a fighter and his mom was so desperate to do anything. And 
the first day, his mum just was so grateful because it was like this whole big team, this army, just walked in and was like, right, we need to do this, we need to do that, we need to watch out for this. And um, we had to teach her how to feed him in ways that he would receive it. We had to teach her how to give it on time. But how do you do that whenever a person doesn't know how to read the time? A person doesn't have the watch, maybe doesn't know how to read a clock. So the people around me, and this is what I love, the teamwork about it, I didn't even think of that. Didn't even enter my head. I, I was like, what do you mean? She doesn't even know how to read a clock. Like that, that just was, that just didn't even enter my head. But different people within the team did. And before long, baby Paul was starting to show the signs that he was gaining and he was developing such a personality. And his mom started to get to know us. And she loved, you know what? I just think from no age to old age, everybody loves this. You're doing great. You know, well done. And Mama Paul, anytime she was on that dock, she stormed into our tent, Rochelle, Rochelle. And that's all I heard. And I was like, we? Oui? Say moi? and handed me Paul, and I had to like strip back all of the clothes and go, oh, wow, you're doing so good, to the point where then, she didn't even come into the tent, she just handed the child to somebody and was like, Rochelle, and baby Paul was handed to me, and baby Paul grew and grew and grew, and the bond that I had with the mum and Paul grew, and the love that I had for Paul Grey. And I couldn't quite talk to her. So the French was limited on her point of view because she lived far up. And she like talked in another tribal language. And my French is a wee bit limited. And so, but laughter dispels everything. A smile dispels everything too. And the mum seeing how her son was doing. And the first day, I, I thought to myself, what's that? I thought that was an angel arriving. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> but it's okay if it does, you know, that's fine. <laughs> have to be open for all of this. Um, I said, do you want something to send home? Because your family at home know that you're going to see this ship with white people and you know, they're not going to know how, like, what's happening. And, like, you've just left and they don't know if you've made it. And she was like, yeah, that would be amazing. And I think that was the first step to gaining the trust, to building the rapport. And these pictures, she got all of these pictures. Everybody fell in love. Everybody wanted pictures with Paul. And before Christmas, baby Paul had gained enough weight to have his cleft lip repaired. And look at his wee pout. Didn't he have the cutest wee pout? I thought if you were a girl, I would have a lippy on you. Because you would just look great. And, you know, every, everybody just adored him. And, you know, the team that I worked with, there was a pastor's wife on it. There was three nurses on it from, from the local area. And whenever they saw Paul, they just started singing. And they sang, We serve a God who is powerful, alleluia, eh? A God who is mighty, yo, yo, yo. This God is a good God, hallelujah, eh? 
We call him a miracle, miracle papa. And I love that, miracle papa. Such a endearing term. A term of, that's exactly what he is. He is Lord, but he's papa too. And whenever they prayed, they prayed that he would, like he was sitting right next to them. Papa, I pray for, Papa, I thank you for this life. Papa, I thank you for this day. They taught me so much. They taught me about the relationship with God, that it is so personal. And while I knew that growing up, whenever you see people who get so excited, it rubs off on you. And it rubs off on everybody else around and outside, the patients were dancing, they were singing, they were shouting hallelujah. And I loved that because inside the tent, sometimes I was crying and then I heard them singing, dancing, glorifying God. And that kept me going. That lifted my spirit. And baby Paul just kept growing. Rolls for days, as we would say. <laughs> Look at the wee chubby legs. I stripped him down, got him on that measure, and oh my goodness. And so at Christmas time, we decided that his cleft lip um, was healing well, and the cleft palate would take longer. We didn't know if we had time because he had to gain more weight, and his palate was so wide. So we said, instead of you staying here, go home. And this worried us a little bit. Did they... Would they feed him enough? Did they have enough access to food? Mama was doing so well. Mama was gaining weight too. Um, but I, we, we didn't know what she had at home. The other kids might have ate first before Paul got, because he was the runt. You know, he was the last. And we, we had to chat with her and chat with her. It's so important to feed Paul. It's so important to keep this up. You're doing so good. And look at Paul, he's thriving. But you have to keep this going. So Paul, so Paul headed home. And we'll talk more about Paul. The next patient. What can I say about this lady? I first met um, her... Me and Fanta met whenever she was living in, in an extension. So whenever they come to the ship and they don't live local, we put up housing for them. But we had so many people that live far out um, that we had to house them in the local hospital. And little did I know until I started chatting to her that she had this large mass and um, she was hypertensive blood pressure was through the roof and it was not at a safe level that we could do an operation. And I had to be the one to say, I'm so sorry, Fanta, but we can't help you. Um, the blood pressure's too high. Like, we need it down. It's, um, it's at a risk where we couldn't do an operation. She started crying and begged me and told me how she worked in the local hospital and still worked because she had to work. She had to earn money. And that she hid, hid this mass. She, she wore larger clothing so that other patients wouldn't see it because they were so horrified by it. And she begged me, Rochelle, Rochelle, help me, please. Don't say no. And I could see the colleagues of mine waiting for me. And I looked at them and I was like, 
these are going to squeal, but I'm going to try and help. And I was like, if you do according to the diet, you need to exercise, you need to take the tablets, but it's not a guarantee. And she kissed the face off me and said, oh, Rochelle, I will, I will, I will. And we saw her three more times. And each time the blood pressure was coming down. So I could see that she was working hard and it got down to a level where we could operate. The tumour had been growing for over 10 years. It weighed over 10 pounds. Can you imagine that? On your arm, lugging that about, working, working as a nurse and turning patients, trying to do everything. And... um, one day, I, I knew that she had got an operation and her date, but I couldn't remember exactly when. And we were on another day, patients everywhere, there was babies crying. And all I heard was, Rachel! And I was like, we? And all I heard was, hallelujah! And she screamed the tent down. And this was her. She walked in with the... With the Lambawani, as we called it, the cloth that she had covered her arm because she was so ashamed. And whenever she shouted hallelujah, she lifted up her arm, screaming hallelujah. And that gives such a different meaning to the song that we have heard now sung, I raise a hallelujah. Because she was determined, she was getting this operation. (laughs) And I was determined that I was going to help her, but I wasn't guaranteed. And I prayed so hard, Lord, please. Like, I am so desperate. Like, I'm desperate for every patient. I will advocate for every patient. And see her screaming that hallelujah. Everybody in the tent just looked like, what? And the music was playing. Because whenever whenever it's really busy and things are going mad, music calms me down and just helps me focus. So there was a bit of background music. At that moment, I just thought, you know what? Everything can just stop. And we cranked it up and we all just started dancing. And she screamed, hallelujah. I think the other tents were like, what is going on and screaming? But you know what? We didn't care because we're called to cry with people and we're called to rejoice and we rejoiced that day. We, we danced. We shouted hallelujah. And there was another picture, which was a bit more formal, but who wants formal? Like, I said, right, enough of that. Let's go wacky. And this is what we got. And she was just, oh, she was elated. She kissed everybody. She kissed anybody that walked past her. She was just so happy. And oh, the patient joy just grew and grew and grew. And like I could talk about each of these patients. Where's that wee pointer that you give me, Pastor? Oh, there, there it is. So baby Nana was such a sassy wee baby. <laughs> you couldn't ignore her because if you ignored her, she had crawled over to you and smacked your leg until you looked down and give you this wee mischievous like smirk like, you pick me up now. These two were an example of what love is. Husband and wife. John had lost his sight years ago and they, and they had a farm and they farmed it together day and night. He lost his sight and she continued, but he continued to try and help her. And he had a parotid tumour on his neck 
and she was so desperate for him to get the help. And she came, and they always had a smile on their face. Always had a smile on their face. And I met them and had to assess him, done his lab work, and he recognised me, my voice. And every time he always walked in, he would have felt my hands, oh, Rochelle, and the two of them just beamed. And it made my heart just overspill with joy. And it just taught me, like, love is, like, what it says, love is patient, love is kind. And it was a pure example of that. And Yaya was a lady that um, had a tumour. And the cloth that she has wrapped around us both was a cloth that she had wrapped around herself. She refused to let anybody see her. And whenever she came into the tent, um, we started chatting to her. And obviously to see what the problem was, we had to ask her to remove it. And she was so scared to, because she had got shunned. She had, she had she got beaten. And um, we had to create a safe space for her. A space where she knew that she was accepted. And she came after, and I didn't even know her without the tumour. But she was like, look at me, a beautiful, beautiful woman. And I was like, but you were before. Like, you were. Like, yes, I'm so pleased that this is gone, but you always were that person. And then these ladies had been in labour for hours. They had lost their child. They were leaking urine. They had been exiled. Um, they had lost everything. And they had sold land because they had found this person that could do an operation that could help them and didn't work. They were desperate to be healed. They were desperate to have a son. And it wasn't happening. And they were telling me these stories. And I can remember this day, I just felt so overwhelmed. And one of them was telling me how they sold everything, how they lost everything, their husband left them. And I just started crying. And Barris, who worked with me, who was a pastor's wife, was an older lady. She was the mama of, you know, all of the group. And she just looked at me and was like, Rochelle, what is your problem? Oh, like the tears were tripping me, like, and the patient was crying. And I was like, this is too much, like the pain, the heartache. And she's like, this is life in Africa. It's normal, come on. See, in that split second, I, I was like, no, that's not okay. That is not okay. It's, it's not okay to say this is Africa. That's not okay to say that. And she was so matter of fact. Now, I loved her. I loved her so much because we ended up working a lot and she just said it as it was. She didn't mix her words. Sometimes she told me stuff and it didn't make sense. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. I'm telling you what the patient said. And I was like, okay, do small. But in that split second of this is Africa, I, I just thought, but that's not what God intends. That, that's not a God that I serve. That's not what God calls for these people. And my heart grew for Africa with every patient. And I can't, I can't explain it. And, but kids have always had such a special place in my heart. 
kids in Africa, kids here. I think kids, you can learn so much from them. Kids, kids accept what you say. They don't question it like us. They don't question your love for them. They don't question that you're going to feed them. And I think you can learn so much from them because Abba Father, God is the same with us. And I think like for all of the conversations that I had with everybody, I like re replayed them over and over and over again in my head. And I was like, why don't I take this advice? I'm so good at giving it. But you know, we're not so good at taking our own advice, are we? And you know, God's calling us to trust him more. But do we trust him? Do we trust him with every single part? Because, that, because that's hard, because we do kind of like to hold on. We, we, we do like to be like, oh, yes, God, I, oh, 100%. But do we really? Whenever things are out of our control, whenever things are unknown, whenever you get that unexpected call, whenever things end, whenever the job stops, are you still shouting hallelujah? Like, and kids, kids are not like that. And, you know, I love to watch people. Everybody loves the people watch. You go on holidays, you know, you look around and all. And, but friends that have small kids, you know, I've watched them and, Kids tend to throw straps, big kids do too. I want it now. And, you know, but a parent that loves will correct a child and be like, that's not okay. You need to share or the way you've answered that person is rude. We don't talk that way and we explain it to them. And I find that God brought me to a place that he... You do self-analyze yourself at times, or at least I do anyway. And sometimes it's pretty ugly. And sometimes you feel God pressing on parts that you're like, you know you have to work on. And he is molding us every day the same way the pastor spoke on this morning. And he gently does it bit by bit. And he's never going to do it that that he's like, oh, that's scrap, scrap that away. But he is going to mould it and it, is, and it is uncomfortable whenever he starts highlighting parts. But I love the way a kid listens to the parent and then the parent's like, okay, love you. And the kid says automatically, love you too. And then runs off and everything's fine again. And I, that's the heart that I want to have now that doesn't hold on to hurt that relives it over and over again, that hurt gets down in, that hurt turns into resentment and turns you into a person that you're not, that turns you into a person that you know that God hasn't made you. And that can happen because hurt is so, it's so real to each of us. We have all, we have all experienced it. And it's so raw and it's so personal. And sometimes you feel like, well, I have a right to be hurt here. And whenever you're hurt, you're so quick to nearly hurt other people. Because hurting people hurt people. And that's, that's what God showed me over the last couple of years, that you can have a ricochet effect. Are you going to have a ricochet effect in the flesh and lash out? Because you do tend to do that. 
or are you going to choose God's way, which is hold your tongue? Do not react. Pause, step back, think about it, respond. Have I always done that? No. We all know I'm quite impulsive. We all know I can be, I'm just going to call it out. Or what do you mean? You know, but I have felt like God has been molding me and softening them edges. And I was known as Mama Africa. Anytime I had a child in my arms and I didn't care. I continued on, but I had a child. I never strapped them on. You know, you know the way, you know, they all strap them on and they just continue on. No, I kind of liked having the arm around them and having the wee cuddle. And but my teammates wanted me to be truly African. And once they addressed me, they were like, and now you're Mama Africa. This is you, Mama Africa. But these two especially got to know me and they got to know my ways. And around December time, January time, they would have come up to me and was like, Rochelle, are you okay? I'm fine. You know that automatic answer. Don't ask any more questions, I'm fine. And they were like, you're not, your eyes, your eyes say it. And I wasn't okay. And I could feel this like, war starting to to rage within me and I couldn't understand it and the thing that you have to understand is whenever you're out on the field you have this mission world and you meet all these amazing patients and you hear all of these stories and the heartaches and the joys and the sorrows and the hallelujahs and that's all amazing and that's the mission world but then you have a personal life too that's going on at home and life continues on at home and it should and you're keeping in touch with that. And then you have you as well. And sometimes it all just, it's all a bit much. And that's how I was feeling. And I was feeling overwhelmed, broken. Have you ever felt that way? That sometimes you're just like, I don't know how I'm going to continue on here. But you know you're meant to because you know you're called to. And the God that calls you is the God that will enable you. And you stand on that. But God is such a loving God that he places people within your life. And I thank God for that. And on the ship, I met this lady called Anne. And she was a counsellor. Counselling, ooh, such an anti-Northern Irish thing. Ooh, therapy, ooh. All my Americanos love it. And us in Northern Ireland hate it. And I was here in the middle and my Americanos on the ship was like, I think it would be really good for you to go and talk to somebody. What? Do you think I'm weak? What do you mean? I don't need to go and speak to somebody. And Anne, being Anne, is this social person and she filters through everybody and she met me and somebody said, I think it would be really helpful for you to go and talk to Anne. I thought, I don't know Anne. I need to suss her out. So I people watched (laughs) from afar And I thought, right, Lord, if the opportunity arises, I'm going to do this. If if this is you, I'm going to do it. And sure, wouldn't you know, the next day, bumped into her and got chatting. And I was like, I think I need to come and have a chat. Absolutely. I'll make a wee appointment for you. And she became Mama Bear for me. She fought for me whenever I couldn't. She was the one who first said to me at the start of the 
New Year, which I think would be really good for you to take a time out. I think you just need to take a step out and breathe. You need to exhale because you're not breathing. And I wasn't breathing. I felt like I was in a state of like, I can't dare move because something else is going to go wrong. Because it felt like everything was going wrong. I felt like I was being attacked on every side. I felt like my character was being slain. My personality was being slain. My nursing, everything. I, I felt like the worst person ever. <laughs> and felt like, why would anybody want to be around me? Because I'm such an awful person. And it's a pretty low place to be. And my friends around me who knew me were starting to notice. And I thought I was hiding it well. And we all try to. We all try and put on that mask and the, I'm fine, and put on the smile and laugh at the appropriate times and stuff and nod. And, but it was whenever somebody on the ship didn't know me, I thought, oh my goodness, my mask is so slipping. And they came up to me and they said, I don't know you very well, but are you okay? Because I haven't heard you laugh for a long time. And normally we can hear you laughing everywhere. And I haven't seen you smile for ages. Well, automatically, I'm fine. But I wasn't. And, I, and, and the alarm bells in me and God, and, and I could feel God press on me, come back to me. And I remember praying, God, are you even there? Because it felt like I was praying and they were not even hitting the roof. They weren't even going nowhere near the roof, never mind ricocheting off. I just felt so alone. And sometimes God brings you to that place where you have to recognize you are not able to do it. And it's a humbling experience. It's a really humbling experience, but it's a frightening experience too because it's such an unknown and you feel so broken and you feel exhausted and you're just desperate for help, but I wasn't quite there yet. And in February, a friend left the ship and my closest friend there was outside saying goodbye and I could see people looking at me. You, you can always see them. <laughs> you can feel the eyes on you. And my friend took me over to the side and was like, what's going on with you? And I said, I feel like I'm falling apart. And she turned around and said, honey, you are falling apart. And that was like an arrow to my heart. And she's like, what are you going to do? I was like, I have no idea. I have no idea. I, I, I don't know what to do. And um, whenever Anne had mentioned about going away, she had mentioned a place and said that Turkey kept coming to her and that there was this counselling centre and she thought it would be really good. And I just thought, what on earth are people going to say? Rachel has lost it. Rachel's going to Turkey. Like, she's on the mission field. Like, you know, she's a Christian. And like, God's called her there. But like, she's in Turkey now. What on earth? And the fear of that... The fear of letting people down, of people thinking that I was weak, started to consume me. And it was a fear of, I can't do it. But I've come to the realization, 360 people, well, nearly 360, that I can't do it on my own. And nobody can. And 
God will bring you to a point if you're not willing to recognize that and to empty yourself so that he can fill you of him. And the day came that broke me. There's always a straw that breaks the camel's back. And um, I was in getting a cup of tea and somebody turned around and spilt boiling water down my arm. In the middle of a dining room that was packed, the person reached out and touched my arm, which made the burn sting even more. And your body's automatic kind of reaction to trauma, fight or flight. I didn't have either of them responses. I froze. And I discovered this new response. My body went into an automatic freeze zone that I knew if I had screamed, I was never going to stop. Or if I just lay down, I was never getting up. And I just froze. And I could hear my friend saying, Rachel, what are you going to do? Rachel, look at me. And I just froze. And she was like, you are going to go downstairs. And she instructed me. And it was like everything just blanked. And at that moment, I, I was like, I can't do this. I need to get away. And God turned everything that was no into the yes. I wasn't allowed time off. And suddenly I had time. There was no space out in the counselling centre and suddenly there was the place that I thought that I should head and stay because it was so close to it and I didn't want to have to think about travelling anywhere else. There was no room with them, but this family offered their house as a safe space and they took me in and they cooked for me every day. They, they, they loved me. They completely accepted me and God... God took me away. God didn't need to bring me home because God needed me to come to him. God didn't need me to hear anybody else of like, Rachel, you should do this. God, God needed me to run to him. And that's what I'd done. And I had nothing else left. And I was like, God, what do you want here? What are you wanting me to do? And I could feel that a change was coming and a season of unknown was coming, and that God was going to strip me back. And that is uncomfortable, and that is scary, whenever you know that that's coming. And for everybody else, oh, it's so exciting, Rachel, you know, there's so much possibility, and you're just thinking, it's not exciting for me, because I have no idea. Everything is blank. And, but God, God had orchestrated everything to the person buying the plane ticket to, for me, because I couldn't afford it, to the people that I met, the conversations I had, that people wanted to have me around and cook me steaks. And, you know, I think you just need fed. I love food. But I was off food. I wasn't even eating because I just didn't have the energy. I, didn't, I just didn't even want to eat. And, but God knew every aspect of what I needed I, I was given a top floor of this person's house and it had windows everywhere. I lived in a windowless cabin, people, for three years. I did not have sunlight and suddenly I had all the natural sunlight and then windows were never shut. And God knew what I needed. And God can only start and move whenever we say we can't. God, because God, God's not going to force himself on us. God's not like that. He will give us warnings. And he, and, and he will gently call us, but, he, but he's never going to force his way in. And I find that whenever I started to release and let go, 
that God moved in such an amazing, suddenly, that my head was spinning. And I can remember contacting home and saying to dad, thinking, he's going to think I have lost it. And I just said, dad, I need a time out. And somebody said about me going to Turkey, isn't that crazy? Oh my goodness. But I've kind of said yes, and I don't know. And he was like, love, if that's what you need, you do it. If God, if God is opening this door for you, go and do it. And that acceptance of, I love you no matter what, is what, I didn't need anything else. And for the other close people that I told, their responses completely echoed that. And that, and like that blew me away because I thought they'll be like, well, for goodness sake, just dig in, come on, pull yourself up. Because I would have that mentality, Rachel, you're fine, you can do this. But it got to the point where I couldn't dig in because there was nothing left. And God needed me to do that. And the goodness of God overwhelmed me. Three weeks out in Turkey. And God became so real to me. It felt like he was sat next to me. He spoke into my heart about things that I wasn't even aware of. And the decisions that I had to make about staying on or taking on management posts and posts that I thought that I had earned, that I had a right to, posts that I wanted to take. I wanted to become this higher manager because I wanted to fight for people. And, and in order to do that, you have to be in the posts. But I could feel God saying no. And sometimes... And it wasn't this audible voice, but it was this pace that just didn't sell. And I can remember just thinking, I want to say yes, but I know I have to say no. And it broke my heart. And God gave me warnings after warnings. Out in Turkey, every conversation I had came back to this. And they all said to me, I really feel like God is telling you to go home. And... It broke my heart every time, but I knew that they were right deep down. Have you ever felt that way? That you've been praying about something and you really want it, but you can feel God saying, not yet or no. And he's shutting the door. And he's shutting the door for a reason, but you can't understand it. And in, that, and in those moments, I discovered that I'm called to obey. I'm not called to understand. I'm not called to understand God's ways that I can't see, but I'm called to obey. And what God was saying to me in those moments were no. And our strengths can become weaknesses because I can be quite a stubborn person. And I went back and I was like, 75% I'm going to say no. 25% was still kind of holding back. And suddenly my math friends that were living in Chad were coming to Cameroon for a week. The weekend I got home from Turkey. And they texted me and said, Rachel, I have a room free and your name's on it. And I believe you're meant to come and stay with us. Took me away from the ship again. Because God knew I didn't need to hear the captain saying to me, you should definitely take that post. We need you back on this ship. Like, and people saying, oh, you would be amazing in that. Because I wanted to do it. And I knew that I could do it. And he removed me from that and sent people from Chad to stay in Cameroon an hour away from me. They could have stayed anywhere in Cameroon, but they didn't. 
And I remember they brought up the conversation too because I didn't want to talk about it. I wanted to talk about them. And you can always get people talking about themselves. If you don't want to talk about yourself, talk about them. People love to talk about themselves. But God knew I had to have that confirmation again. And that was the last one. And I knew if I ignored this, I dreaded to think how my life would have turned out. And I knew I had to say no. And whenever I give my management team the answer, they were so shocked. And then I phoned home. And Dad and Becky were speechless. And everybody was speechless because nobody was going to tell me. I wanted somebody to tell me what to do. Tell me yes or tell me no. Because I don't know. But I did know. But I didn't want to say it. And I remember for a good month after, my dad, every time I spoke to him, well, have you changed your mind yet? You're going to tell us you're going back, aren't you? We're not even getting excited about you coming home for good because we know it's going to change. And I was like, no, it's not. Even though I wanted it to, I knew I had to come home. And even though I went back after Turkey, there was joys, there were so many joys. And baby Paul, mama's little miracle, got his final operation in the final week of operations. And look at how big he grew. Mama, mama had fed him so well and mama was feeding so good too. Baby grew and mama grew. And the goodbyes with him were so sweet. But the goodbyes with the ship just made my heart hurt so much because it was home for three years, which felt like 30 years, let's be honest. And I was obeying God. It wasn't what I wanted to do. It's what I needed to do. And would you believe that I'm standing there and two hours later, malaria took over my body and I was in a bed shaking like a leaf, sweat pouring off me. Two days before I left, the ship. Malaria is not something you want to get people, let me tell you now. And as, as hard as the malaria was, and I was phoning home, I'm fine. But in bed, I was like, I'm going to die. Oh my goodness. And my bloods were all off. And I was traveling for a couple of weeks after because I always like that buffer before I come home and the oh, tell us about Africa. And I needed time to process. And People were like, I don't know if you should travel. Well, nothing was stopping me traveling. I was traveling. But I, I was like, am I going to be safe? Where, where's the local hospital? And people were like, I think you're nuts. You should not be traveling. But I knew that I needed this. And it was time for me and God to just be like, God, I am obeying, but I don't understand. And I came home and the first couple of months were a blur. I don't remember any of it. Last summer is, is a blur. And I believe that that is God's love and God's mercy. Because sometimes in life, we, we, we tend to replay the bad stuff. We never replay the good stuff. We always replay the negative comments that people have said to us. We, we pour that over ourselves. It just bashes us. It's like the, the ocean crashing in. It, it, it rams us and we, and we replay it over and over and over again. But God in his love, didn't allow that because he knew how fragile and I was fragile. I came home and I was like a ghost and I was like a ghost to live with. 
I went out for the first couple of months, and in every cafe, I just sat and cried. <laughs> I think people thought, she's lost it. What is wrong with that girl? I could not, the pain and the hurt of everything was consuming me. And God was smashing my ideas of crying. Crying's a sign of weakness, which is what I thought, not for anybody else now, but for me. And, you know, emotions, ooh, they're so uncomfortable and they're so, ooh, unsafe and out of control. But emotions are, we are made to be emotional beings. And as much as I like to say that I'm Spock, Spock did have feelings. He just repressed them, but he felt them intensely. And for so many years, I think I'd done that. I repressed and repressed because it wasn't the time. It wasn't the time to do it. You know, the patients were there or my family needed me or such and such. And I, my personality type is to be the helper, to be the fixer. And suddenly I needed help. Suddenly I needed the fixer. And I thought I need to debrief. I didn't want to go away again. I didn't want to go away. The thought of traveling again exhausted me. And I knew that's not me because I could travel the world with my eyes shut. And, but I could feel God saying, you don't need to go away again. You need to do it here. You need to do it here where you're surrounded by people who are going to lift you up and hold you. Hold you in moments that you can't do it. But I've placed people in your life and hold on. And people that are placed within your life Hold on to them. People that fight for you, amazing. And I thank God for every one national, international army. I do have an army and you, and you also have an army. Think about it. Who's the people that stand for you? Who's the people that are like, come on, what's happening? And you be that person too. Because you can't always expect people to do that. And I came home and I... I I did not have the energy to reach out to anybody. And people, and people were like, what's wrong with her? Normally she's running around the place and catching up with this person, never housed. I did not want to leave the house. I wanted to shut the door and hide because I just, I just felt so, bro so broken. And a day was so hard to get through because I just didn't see light. I, I just thought everything is so blank. Everything is so unknown. And my friend Anna Rika contacted me. She was only home a month and I was home a couple of months. And she's like, Rachel, flights are cheap. Is it okay if I come over? And I was like, sure, yeah, come on. And we traveled and I shown her Northern Ireland. And there was this one evening that um, we went to spell Gadam. And I just wandered off and she took this picture. And I was praying to God, God, what are you saying to me? And I could hear, hear him say, be still. And no. And everything around me was so still and it was so peaceful. And nothing within me was peaceful. The war raged so much that it felt consuming. And I was like, be still? What does that even mean? Be still? Can you not feel exactly what's going on inside me, God? And God kept repeating to me, be still and no. And I'm quite a literal person. I like practicalities. So I'm thinking, be still. Well, so then that means I do nothing. But it doesn't mean that. Waiting's active. And I can remember Pastor talking about something and saying, 
You know, whenever you don't know what to do next, know what you know to do now. And I needed to get back to nursing. I needed to get back to work, to reskill, to earn money, because I haven't earned money in years. And the bank account was very low. And as Daddy would say, can't live in thinner. And, you know, I, but I needed that. Nursing was something that I loved. And because at, at a point I thought, do I even love nursing anymore? I, I don't know. And like, honestly, God stripped me back in every way. My confidence was shot. And going back to work, I was so quiet. All these new people, there were 75% new staff. And they were like, oh, you're that nurse that went out to Africa. And I just went, mm-hmm. And people would have been like, tell us a story. And I'd have been like, no. Shut down. And they were like, what? And I was like, no. I, I, I just couldn't talk about it. I, I just couldn't. And God, and, God, and God was working on me inside. And he led me to speaking to a person here. And counselling, I will wave the flag for counselling now, people. Therapy is amazing. If you find somebody that you can be safe with and be open with, amazing. And I got contacted, this lady, given her number, but my pride didn't really want to have to admit that I needed to go and talk to somebody. So I stuck it in the pocket and the friend that got me it contacted me. is like, well, have you phoned that person? No. She was like, a fat lot of good that'll do you sitting there in your pocket. And I had to get to that point again where I was like, I can't do this. And that stuck feeling came. And I can remember saying, I need to go and speak to somebody. And, you know, knowing, knowing the right thing to do doesn't mean it's easy. It's hard. And the first time that I ever had to go to her, didn't know where I was going Lamb bag, could have been Timbuktu for all I knew, because Northern Ireland felt so strange. I hadn't driven these roads properly. I was getting lost going to simple places. So Satnav was set that morning. I was so worked up. I had three coffees. I was shaking like a leaf. I, I left an hour to get down to Lamb bag. It takes you 20 minutes, people. So I had a lot of time to kill. So I thought, I need something to comfort me. Hot chocolate, McDonald's, thank you very much. So there I was driving along, holding my... <laughs> hot chocolate, and the wee woman said, you've reached your destination. Well, I was that wound up. I mounted the curb. The hot chocolate went over me. I was past it. <laughs> I finally arrived. The lady wasn't there because I was that early, of course. And she finally arrived, and she ran into the house and opened the front door and went, oh, you're early. And I went, yeah, um, do you want me to go and wait in the car? And she's like, that would be great. Shut the door. Well, I thought to myself, if you knew how on edge I was. Well, I just marched over to my car and I thought, well, Lappin, this isn't working out. No connection here. And in that moment, I could feel God saying to me, stop that. Because I was shutting it down. I, I was like, well, this isn't going to help. And God, God showed me, how many times do we come to him and be like, I'm ready. But God's like, not yet. Now, what I didn't know was she was putting the lights on, she was putting the heat on, she was putting the kettle, she was making a cup of tea, she was getting the biscuits out because we in Northern Ireland love a wee biscuit with her cup of tea. I didn't know that. She was setting the scene for it to be welcoming, for, for it to be a safe space. But I didn't know that. She slammed the door in my face and I just thought, oh, the chick. 
Now, let's be honest, you would have thought that too. You would have. I know. And God, and God in that moment said to me, sometimes that is the way it is whenever you come. And you think you're so ready for it, but I'm like, not yet. And <sighs> anxiety, have you ever experienced that? Oh, I have. Anxiety was a brand new thing. And I remember talking to a friend and she was just so straight and honest. Do you ever have people that are in your life and they just say it straight to you? They say it in love, but they're just honest with you. Well, why are you so anxious? Because if you trust God, babe, why are you not just trusting? This was the Mexicano, by the way. And I thought to myself, I can't believe you've just asked me that. Of course I trust God. You trust God too. And, he's, and, and she said, but do you really trust God with everything? Because if you did, would you be anxious? Because the Bible says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer. And that was like a narrow to the heart. And God was calling me to talk more to him, to pray more to him, to talk to him. And the final reset was whenever I had done the tropical nursing course. And you think... This was five months after I arrived home and I thought I was doing better. I could feel myself getting back to myself. I was smiling a bit, I was laughing a bit. And the DTN, tropical nursing, diploma in three weeks, not recommended people. It is an intense course that blew my mind. And then I had to write a paper, which I could hardly even formulate a sentence. And my sister had to sit down and be like, what are you even trying to say here? Because that doesn't even make sense. I just lost it. And I can remember dad saying to me, listen, love, it doesn't matter if you pass this. Hello? Do you know how much this course was? And do you know how much this means to me? And dad says, no, what I mean is whether you pass it or whether you fail, it's not going to change. I love you irregardless. And I, I had built this up in my head so much. And... This is what I mean, kids, simple. Adults complicate things. I complicate things. I had put so much on this course and I, had, I felt so frustrated with myself. My expectations on myself were huge and there weren't expectations that anybody else had put on me. There weren't expectations that God did, it was me. And God, and God highlighted that and was like, I, I have called you to do this course. I am telling you, you're to do this and you're going to pass this. Now, God, God very clearly told me this. I thought, well, you may be changing the words within the text. Like, I don't know how you're going to do it, God, but you may change it electronically. All things are possible. Change the words. Um, because I just thought, it's a pile of gobbledygook. Like, I mean, it doesn't even make sense. I passed that. Like, I didn't even just pass it. They wanted me to go and do these masters. Well, Dad and Becky were like, you wouldn't need to be thinking about that because we're not going to be living in the house with you. And after doing that course, one of my American friends wanted to meet me out in Italy. And I was like, okay, I'm not really great company right now. And she was like, come, I haven't seen you now in like a couple of years. I would really love to see you. And Italy was the final reset and I was walking along this beach and I don't know if any of you know this song and it goes 
um, even when I lost me, you know, you, you knew where I left me. And that song repeated over and over in my head because I felt lost. I felt like I didn't know me, but God knew me. And God, and God, and God knew who he called me. And he called me chosen. And he called me loved. And he called me, you are called to this. You're you, like, you are more than able. And God says that to each of you. You are chosen. You are loved. But we tend to say the opposite. I can't do this. Oh my goodness. You know, and my American friend likes to get excited about a lot of things. And it's great whenever people get excited about life because people say that I do too. And there was all these like stones, right? And there were all these tiles and they were like just broken up parts. And she's like, aren't these beautiful? And I was like, it's a pile of scrap. What? So like I thought, oh my goodness, here she goes, getting elated about. And she's like, no, but they're so pretty. And I was like, good for you. And she's like, do you want some? And I was like, well, I thought it'll get her out of my hair for a bit. I did on. And she went along and she collected these. And you know, after it, I even brought them home. Like, why? But there was a purpose in it. And God, God said to my heart, See what you see as a mess. I see it as my way to speak through people. Abstract art, like it is abstract. Do you ever see abstract art? See these people who see these amazing things. I don't see that. And that's wonderful because we all have different strengths. But God sees amazing things in each of us. God sees, sees the talents, the skills, the personality like we're each called to loads of different things. Like I couldn't do what each of you do. Couldn't do it. My mind would like be so fried. I'd be sitting in a corner being like, it's a stay over, it's a stay over, it's a stay over. But God calls us to each of our jobs, to each of our families, to each of our friends for a purpose. And what we see as a mess is his way of saying, but don't call a mess what I call amazing, beautiful, loved. And God changed the way that I saw stuff, the perspective that I had changed. And see, whenever I finally said, right, God, my hands are fully open now. 25% wasn't being held back. I am giving it all to you. And in that, that's scary but it's also exciting. And it's whenever the excitement overrides that fear. Like there's still, there's still nerves there because I still don't really know what I'm doing. But I feel okay about that. I feel that peace. And, but I still believe I'm called out. When that's going to happen and how that's going to happen, I don't know. And people that keep asking me, well, 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 what is next? What is next? I had to start and say to people, I am actively avoiding you because you induce anxiety. So I actually can't talk to you. And they just looked at me and I went, well, I'm just being honest. So I have to run now. And they were like, but we're just so interested. And I was like, do you know what? See, whenever I know, you will hear about it because you'll hear me squealing. And, you know, sometimes being being bombarded by what's next and blah, blah, blah. It's great that people love and want to know, but sometimes just being is the most amazing gift ever. And that's what I needed. I needed normal. 
I needed not to be living with 400 people. I needed to live with two people and really evacuate them out of the house every weekend. Every Saturday, I was saying to Dad, I think you should go out tonight. Or, Becky, you'll be going out tonight. And Dad, what a frequency, said, you're being a weirdo again, aren't you? <laughs> well, if you want to call me that, yep. And Becky would have been like, you know, this is my house too. I can stay in my house. Oh, you can for six nights a week, but not tonight. Tonight you have to get out of an empty pot. You can't do it. And God, and God knows what we need. The same way God knew that I had to go away, that God took me away from everything I knew so that I could be with him, that he placed people within my life that I didn't even know, that, I, that now contact me so much, wanting to know what's happening and, Anytime, Rachel, you have a bed out in Turkey. Anytime, come on out. And like, that's one of the most amazing things too. And last summer, whenever I was going through a shop, I saw this sign and I started crying in Dublin. I just, of course, was crying. Sure, it was crying all last summer. My bottles of tears are well stored up now. And it was like hope ignited again in me. And I could feel God saying, it's not the end. And I don't know what any of you are having to live through or having to face the mountains that you are having to face, the fears you have, but what feels like the end is not the end. God, God that started a good work, the same way pastor preached this morning, is faithful to see it to the end. The God who called you is the God who's going to enable you. And I believe that more than ever. And now I'm not that girl that went to Africa out and work. Oh yeah, I did go to Africa. And you know, healthcare is all right. And I go on this whole rant and they're all like, oh my goodness, here she goes. And I won't stop talking about it now. But there was a process that I had to go through. There was, there, there was a time that God needed to work in me. And God did need to work in me. And God had a lot of work to do in me. And God still has a lot of work to do in me. And I'm very aware of that. And I want to be open to that. And I want to have my hands open. I don't want to have them closed. I want to have them open. And for all of the people that, what's next? Je vais aller en France. At the end of August, I go to French school to learn French language. Because as much as this has been a year of rest and recharge, I, I felt like God was saying, this is also a year of preparation, of building your skills. I can have all of the experience, but on paper, I need to have the courses. I need to have the education. And that's what I've done. I've went and done courses, courses that have scared the life out of me. And I felt so unable to do them. But the people on the course have somehow took me under their wing and I've blitzed it and I have learned so much. And now God is calling me to language school, which I thought I would never do. So I'm moving to France at the end of August for four months for an intensive program, four days a week, eight to five. And my plan is to turn off the English brain and turn on the French brain. I will have French news playing, French music. I'm going to go, I'm Frenching it up. <laughs> and thank the Lord, coffee is called Americano in France as well, because that is what I will be living on flat out. And what's next after that? I don't know. But I don't need to know. 
because the only thing I need to know is what I'm meant to do next. And the next step is this. And in due time, I will find out. And after that, if I don't know, I'm going to come home and melt your heads another wee bit. But I'll not be speaking again because, oh my goodness, you're down for an ice cream and a cup of tea. And thank you so much for loving me and for accepting me and for having the patience to listen to me tonight, but to have the patience to love me through the hard times and to love me through the crazy times that I sit in there and drop a stick and squeal, but you can't hear me anymore because you have like confined me to a hut. And, you know, I am so thankful for all of that, for the people that have hugged me. And you think it's something so small and so simple. It's not. It's massive. And the small things are the most impactful things at times. And there are prayer cards somewhere. And if you would take one, I would love that. Please pray for me. If you want to partner with me, I would love that too. Some people still are. And that money has been going into a separate account that has been doing courses and doing all of that. I've been working as much as I can to fund all of this, but I have to pay for all of this myself. So, but do you know what? God's never saw me stuck. And God's never going to see me stuck because I believe that God has called me to do this. And do you know what? Pot noodles are fine. <laughs> They're not the most nutritious, but I ain't going to get fit. <laughs> I'm going to walk on velo. And I, I am really excited for what's ahead. I'm nervous, but I'm mostly excited. And thank you for your encouragement, for your support for your love. And I think my battery's died, so that means <laughs> time's up. <laughs> Merci beaucoup.